Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, we're going to be in John 15 this morning. Uh, if you're a guest today, uh, we are going through the Gospel of John. Back in January, we started out on this journey. We began with John 1.1. And each week we go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we've spent a lot of time looking at those three and a half years of the life and ministry of Jesus, and we've come to that point in time where Jesus has, uh, share, is in the midst of sharing a meal with his disciples. This is known as the, the upper room discourse, and it goes through uh, John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then Jesus closes out the upper room discourse with chapter 17 with a prayer. And so we're chunking it up over 11 weeks going through this upper room discourse. But all these things happen during what we, of course, known as Holy Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He's just got a little bit of time, uh, in fact, hours before they go off into the Garden of Gethsemane where he's arrested um, and then uh, stands trial several times. And then, of course, Jesus goes to the cross. So that's where we're at in the story in John 15. And uh, over and over, as we've looked uh, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has made these I am statements. And really, these I am statements, they go back to the Old Testament about 1,400 years earlier. Moses, at that point in time, was an old guy, an older guy. He was getting up there in age. He was 80 years old. And he hadn't really done much with his life. And there he is, out tending flocks. And all of a sudden, he sees this bush burning off in the distance. And so he walks over there. And he gets over there, and he hears, Moses, Moses, I need you to do something for me. My people are enslaved in Egypt, and I need you to go to the most powerful man, in ancient times, the Pharaoh, and tell him to let my people go. And Moses is like, who are you again? Who's this speaking in the burning bush? And God says, tell the Pharaoh, I am. I am that I am. The Hebrew, what we know this is as Yahweh. This is who he is. God says, my name is I am that I am. And so, of course, Moses does what God tells him to do. He's not sure how to do it. He shows up to Pharaoh and says, God says, I am the great I am. says, let God's people go. And he uses these ten plagues. You guys know this story. You've read the, the Old Testament. And the tenth plague, finally, God says, I want you to slaughter a lamb and place the blood around the doorpost of the, of the homes. And so when you do that, when the angel of death comes, that will protect you, that will save you, that will rescue you. And so that's how God actually ultimately rescues his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. Now, fast forward to when Jesus walks on this earth. And as he's beginning his public ministry, John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And of course, he's pointing back to making reference to the Passover lamb. And in that moment when John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, everybody's like, Oh, the Messiah, the one who has come to rescue us again, has arrived. And so this is what's going on in the story over and over and over. Jesus is making these I am statements, which means he's claiming to be God. He says, I am the bread of life. 
I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And each time he makes an I am statement, he's saying, "My, I'm God. Remember, that's God's name. That's who I am. And it's shocking to the people who heard this. And so as Jesus says this over and over and over, today he's going to speak these words, I am. I am the true vine. I am the connection to God. If you want to know God, you need to know me. So we're going to talk about this morning this idea of being connected to God is not about a religion, but it is truly about a relationship with the living God. All right, did I give you enough time to get to John 15, everybody there? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, for this morning an opportunity, God, to worship you, to serve you, and to reflect, God, on the ways in which you are moving among us. God, as we reflect on your word this morning, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, a few years ago, I was walking through the park near our house. And I could hear up ahead some commotion going on. And so as I kind of meandered over that way, there was a little girl, maybe three or four years old, and she was kind of um, really upset. And as I got closer and closer, I could see what was going on. She was having an encounter uh, with a small dog uh, nearby. And this dog was kind of snarling at her. It was kind of growling at her. It's kind of nipping at her even. And I'm like, oh, and I think it was, you know, it was a little dog. I think it was just kind of playing with her. It was kind of trying to figure out, you know, who the boss is. And so as I get closer and closer, this girl is freaking out. Dad, the dog, dad, the dog. You know, it's, it's kind of going after her. And, and she's kind of, she's, she's, she's upset. She's really concerned about this dog. And so finally she gets close enough to her dad. She just like climbs him like a tree. And she gets in his arms, and she's like, Dad, the dog, Dad, the dog. And the dog's like, and, and the dog is still right there at the dad's feet, kind of going after him. And is this is going, he's calming her down. She's in his arms. And pretty soon, she looks down at the dog. She looks up at her dad. She looks down at the dog. She looks up at her dad. She looks down at the dog and says, Na, 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 na. Now keep in mind in that moment, the external circumstances had not changed. Her foe was still there, going after her, going after the father. But what had changed for that girl in that moment was inside. All of a sudden, because she was in her father's arms, she had confidence. Because she was in her father's arms, she all of a sudden had a boldness that she didn't have before. Her fear was gone. And she was willing to look at that dog and take on that dog in that moment. And I think in many ways, you and I today, we have foes all around us, antagonizing us, struggles, battles that we face things that we fight, and we might experience fear as those things come upon us. And that's kind of where the disciples were because things have really turned south for the disciples. Jesus says, I'm going away. 
And they're like, you've got to be kidding. And things are really, really bad. And so Jesus is teaching them, explaining to them and equipping them how they're going to move forward, how they're going to rest in the Father's arms as they navigate the days and the hours ahead. So John 15, Jesus says these words, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So why does Jesus use this metaphor, this image of being a vine? Well, I I think for one thing, there were vines all over the place. If you were to go to Israel today and walk around Jerusalem, you would see olive trees and you would see lots and lots of different vines, grape vines and different kind of fruit vines. So it was just a very familiar image for them. But in ancient times, if you were walking around Jerusalem and you came up to the temple, you would see a massive door at the temple. It was bronze. And Josephus, the Jewish writer in ancient times, the historian, tells us that on this massive bronze door was a gold-inlaid, embossed vine. And it was this image. And so every time you would go to the temple, if you were Jewish, you would see this big vine. It was a symbol of God's relationship with God's people in ancient times. But when Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, every single Jewish person there, all the disciples who are listening in, all of a sudden they're going, ding, 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 ding. We know exactly what you're talking about, Jesus. Every single one of them, their minds are going immediately to Isaiah 5. They are thinking Old Testament because this image of a vine and a vine dresser was very familiar to them. Those of us who are, you know, New Testament Christians, I guess, if you will, this is why we read the Old Testament. This is why we study the Old Testament, because Jesus regularly and often is referring back to the Old Testament. And so for the Jewish people who are there on that day, they're like, Isaiah 5. Jesus, that's what he's talking about. You might even, if you're taking notes this morning, you might want to even write uh, Isaiah 5 next to John 15. And so I want to invite you to just hear these words from Isaiah 5. Now I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land and cleared its stones and planted it with its best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that were there grew bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and the vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done for you? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do for my vineyard. So God's got, there's this image of God and, and the Israelites, and they're the vineyard. He says, I've done everything for you, but you haven't really paid attention. So let me tell you what I'm going to do for my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. This sounds like my garden. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. 
He expected to find righteousness, but instead he heard cries of violence. And so what Isaiah is saying to God's people, the Jewish people in the Old Testament, is you have been unfaithful. And so I'm going to allow this vineyard that was supposed to take care of, to, to be a light to the nations, a beacon of hope to the Gentiles, a light and a hope and a blessing. You haven't done those things, Israel. So I'm just going to let them go by the wayside. They've been unfaithful. So when Jesus shows up and says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener, they're all thinking Isaiah 5. And what Jesus is saying is, in that moment, I am the one who's going to connect you to God. I am. Ego, Amy is the Greek. I am. That's who I am. I mean, even though God's people were unfaithful, Jesus says, I am going to be faithful to you. How do you experience God? It's not through religion. It's not through systems. It's through a relationship with Jesus. And this is what he is claiming in, in verse 1 here. And then he continues on. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And then he looks at his disciples and says, You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Isn't this great? Over and over he's talked about when you believe, when you trust in Jesus, he will make you clean. He will take care of you. He will offer you salvation. So he looks at his disciples and says, since you've placed your trust in me, you are considered clean. And some of you, what you need to hear this morning as we think about this whole idea of, of being in relationship with God, is that it is as simple as hearing the voice of Jesus and trusting and believing in what he has offered. You are clean. And I know many of you show up on Sunday morning and you think to yourself, yeah, I'm not so clean. I've sinned. Me too. But what you need to hear in this moment as Jesus is talking through this teaching, this is not a text about salvation. This is not a text about salvation. When Jesus says you are already clean, what he is saying is your salvation is secure. Stop worrying about it. Stop obsessing about it. Don't be consumed by your salvation. It's good. But let's talk about what it means now that you are saved, now that you are rescued. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be in relationship with Jesus? Not talking about salvation, but what I'm talking about is how do we grow in our walk with Jesus? And Jesus tells us, even those, the disciples, those who bear fruit, what does he do for them? It says he prunes them so that they'll be even more fruitful. And I don't know about you, but I, as I read that, I'm like, I don't really like that. See, what I would like Jesus to say is, if you are a follower of Jesus, you're just going to be blessed. Isn't anybody else want, isn't that what you want to hear? If I follow Jesus, I'm just going to be blessed. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, if you are a follower of me, you're actually going to be pruned. I'm like, well, that's, that's not super great news, Jesus. But he tells us why. Because he says, 
he wants us to bear even more fruit, to be even more fruitful. Maybe you've heard it says that God loves you just the way you are. And that's absolutely true. But what you also need to know is that God loves you so much, he's not willing to just leave you as you are. He wants, you to, he wants to grow you. He wants to make you even more fruitful and an even bigger blessing for the world. Sometimes Christians will say to themselves or think to themselves, I'm, I'm a saved Jesus follower. I'm rescued. So I'm just going to go do whatever I want now. Jesus says, no. I want to use you to be a blessing to the people around you. So how does Jesus use this pruning in our lives? What does pruning look like in your life and my life? I think one of the most important things that we can do uh, to experience pruning in our lives is just to read God's Word. I don't know about you, but when I read God's Word, I get pruned. I get convicted. Sometimes when I read God's Word, I get encouraged. I'm like, oh, this is really encouraging me. This is awesome. This is wonderful. This word is really speaking to me. Other times when I read God's word, I'm like, oh, I don't like that he said that. I don't like what it says in the Bible. Anybody else? I mean, sometimes the words of Scripture are just hard. And I just feel like God is pruning me through his word. Hebrews 4.12 says it this way, For the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates, even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This is what the Bible does. And this is why we need to be in Scripture every single day. Because it both uh, comforts us, but it also prunes us. It helps us to see those things in our lives that are diseased those things in our lives that are dying and decaying, those things in our lives that are not fruitful, when we read God's Word, it convicts us and challenges us to cut away those things that are getting in the way from bearing more fruit. The Word is always invasive in our lives. And as I think about God's Word, I, I, I think about how sometimes, like a surgeon it comes into our lives, and it just, a surgeon goes in and, and meticulously and carefully cuts away the cancer that's trying to destroy our bodies. This is what God's Word does for us, and, and that's invasive, right? Nobody wants a, a surgeon to just go cutting into us. But the surgeon goes and cuts into us to get rid of the disease, to get rid of the poison, to get rid of those things that are trying to kill us, sometimes slowly and sometimes very quickly. And this is what God's Word does. I think the other way that God is always pruning our lives is through suffering, through suffering and struggle. We read over and over throughout the Bible when people, God's people sinned, they would turn back to God's Word and it would convict them and invite them to look up and hear the voice of God in their lives. So I think about you and me and the struggles and the pains that we face. And sometimes the struggles that we face are meant to prune us. Sometimes the pain in your life, God allows actually to help you, to draw near to you. You know, when I talk to people who are going through pain or suffering, 
They're like, why is God allowing this to happen? And I always think it's interesting that no matter how close or far away from God they are, all of a sudden they're bringing God into the equation. All of a sudden they're looking up and they're like, hey God, let's talk. Things are not good in my life. I'm experiencing pain and suffering. And sometimes God can use the pain and suffering in your life to prune you and help you to draw closer to him. Verse 4, Jesus continues, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So the NIV, NIV translation uh, that I know many of us have, uh, this word is remain. If you're using another translation, perhaps the word is abide. We don't use the word abide so much in our vernacular language, and, and so I kind of like the word remain. But I also think it doesn't do justice to what, uh, what John is trying to teach us about what it means to be connected to Jesus. The, the original Greek word here is meno, and it means to be connected. It means to have some kind of intimacy. It means that we are in, in, in contact both in proximity but also in presence. So when Jesus says, you need to remain in me, you need to abide in me, you need to connect with me, what he's talking about is both proximity and presence. In a couple months, uh, I'm going to be officiating at my nephew's wedding uh, in Minnesota. And my nephew currently lives in Kentucky, and his fiance lives in Pennsylvania. They met at grad school in North Dakota, working on PhDs, and then they're like, oh, we got to figure this out now because they were going in separate directions. And they've been living apart for the past year as they've been, uh, when they got engaged and kind of going through all the engagement. And after they get married, he's still got one more year in Kentucky and she's got two more years in Pennsylvania. And so every time I talk to them to do premarital counseling via Zoom, you know what they're talking about, right? proximity and how difficult it is for them to grow in their relationship with one another and it's really hard and we think about the relationships in our own lives and the ways in which it's difficult to maintain and grow a relationship with one another and so what John and Jesus are talking about here is we need proximity we need to be close to Jesus we need to be connecting with Jesus physically. And we do that through his word, of course. That just that, that closeness, that time together. But you also know that it's not just about proximity, but it's also about presence. Have you ever sat at a dining room table with someone? You're sitting really close to them, and they're on their phone. Nobody? That's never happened to any of you. Have you ever been around somebody really close to them and their mind is somewhere else? They're thinking about something else. And this is what Jesus is talking about. 
is that we need to be connected. We need to abide with him physically and mentally. At every level, he invites us to be connected to him. That's what it means to, to abide or to remain with one another. And then he uses this language um, about we are the branch. You're a branch. I'm a branch. And he talks about what it means to be a branch. To be a branch, he says, you can't do anything. You're, you're a worthless branch. You can't do anything. You just are a, a conduit. You're a connection point between fruit and the vine. That he is the source, and he invites us to bear fruit. But a branch in and of itself, apart from Jesus Christ, we are absolutely worthless. A branch is only good for two things. Producing fruit, connecting to the vine, or just being thrown away. We eat a lot of grapes at our house. I don't know if you eat grapes at your house. And I think about the, 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 the grape uh, uh, branches, the twigs, that after we eat those grapes, I have never said to my wife, these are awesome little twigs. I think we should make something out of them. That's never happened. You know what we do with, with our, the, the leftovers, the, the grapes at our house, the little twigs? We throw them away because they're no longer connected to the vine. They are no longer uh, have any possibility of being uh, fruitful at all. They're a waste. And this was true in Jesus' day as well. Now, if you were to go to Israel today, you would go around and you would look at the different markets, and you could buy little figurines. You could see little um, things being carved out of, made out of uh, olive tree or olive wood. But what you don't find in Israel today, people don't use grape wood for anything. It's a waste. It's soft. It's brittle. It breaks apart. Its only function is to stay connected to the vine, to the source, to the power, so that it can bear fruit. And so what Jesus is saying is, your identity is in who you are when you are connected with Jesus. Apart from Jesus, your identity is worthless. He continues on. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you. This is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And Jesus says it's all about the fruit. It's all about how we live our lives as a, and, and the fruit that comes from our lives. And the fruit is not through your own works. The fruit comes from the source the, 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 the twig, the branch, what you and I are, we can't produce it. And so what is that fruit? Galatians 5 says it this way, the Apostle Paul, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That is the fruit. When we are connected to Jesus, he invites us to allow that fruit to grow through our lives. It's evidence of being connected to Jesus. Now, my son started law school this past week at the University of Illinois. 
And so I've been thinking about him uh, in classrooms, getting ready to become uh, a lawyer. And at the same time, my wife and I are also watching this new TV show called The Lincoln Lawyer. I don't know if you've seen, any of you have seen The Lincoln Lawyer. And we've been watching this TV show where there's lots of courtroom scenes and prosecution and defense and evidence. And so I just thought this morning, if I were to ask you, if you were arrested for being a Jesus follower today, if someone came to your house and said, we heard that you are a Jesus follower, they arrested you, hauled you off to jail, you sat in jail for a few days, you come out, you stand before a judge, you stand before a court, you got a prosecution, you got a defense attorney, could you be proven guilty for being a Jesus follower? What's the evidence in your life? Would you be found guilty? Or, I don't know. I mean, how are you doing with the fruit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the evidence that's going to convict you. Actually, a better question is ask your spouse or your kids. Would I be convicted here? How's the fruit in my life? See, those are things, those are manifestations of our lives that give testimony that we're connected to Jesus, that we are Jesus followers. We don't do those things to earn favor with God. We don't try to live into those things. So God's like, wow, Brian, you are so good at loving and self-control and peace. When God sees the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, he's like, okay, he's connected to me or he's not. And so we look at these things as Jesus tells us to, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain or abide in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. And what I love about these few verses is that Jesus takes this idea of love and obedience, and they are just indistinguishable. See, we live in a world where love is defined by all sorts of things, but over and over and over, throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, throughout all of Jesus' teachings, it's always about being obedient to the Father and being obedient to God's Word. And so Jesus is just like, hey, the Father loved me. I'm going to keep his commandments. Verse 11. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And I love this part of the, the text or the lesson because Jesus is saying the reason why, the reason why I'm talking to you about fruit and vines and branches and all this stuff and remaining and abiding with me, it's not just for any old purpose. It's so that you might experience joy in your life. I'm doing these things so that you might experience joy. And we've talked about this week after week. Because the, what the world is looking for is happiness. And happiness is based on happenings or those circumstances in your life. And as you go through life, sometimes you're happy based on your happenings, uh, but sometimes you're not based on your happenings. But what joy says is it doesn't matter what your external circumstances are. You can experience joy regardless of what is going on all around you. 
And this is why Jesus prunes us, why Jesus cuts out those things in our lives that we don't want him to cut out. The reason why he calls us and, and carefully sculpts us to the men and women he wants us to be. The theological term here is sanctification. It means making us holier and holier. And right now, my garden is really unholy. I don't know about your garden. But the idea is that it's, it's beautiful and it's fruitful. And ultimately, so that you might experience the joy of going through this life and joy for all of eternity. In 1648, a group of uh, Puritans got together and they talked about what does it mean? What does it mean to be a Jesus follower? And so they wrote this, what's known as the Westminster Catechism, which is just really a teaching about what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? And one of the things it says, the very first thing in the Westminster Catechism of 1648 is what is the chief end of man? In other words, what is our purpose on this life as Jesus followers? What's the end goal? What, what's going on? Answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to joy him forever. Our life on this earth is meant to be enjoyed. And I think sometimes we in the church give off the impression that to be a Jesus follower means we're supposed to be really serious, we're supposed to be really somber, we're supposed to just suffer a lot as we go through life. But what Jesus tells us is that's not what he wants for us. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to have that peace in our lives, regardless of the circumstances in our lives. So that's why. So I'm just going to close this morning um, and just kind of talk a little bit. What, what do we do with this? How do we put this into practice? How um, can we abide with Jesus in our own lives? And so I just want to try and make this practical. And I think nothing I share with you this morning, you'll be like, oh, I didn't know that before. Number one, we read God's word. How do we abide with Jesus? We spend time in his word. And when you come to church on Sunday morning, we always have a Bible text, right? That's good. But I think we need to be in God's Word every single day. And I know this is why so many of you are going through the Gospel of John and you're in His Word every single day. This is how we stay connected to Jesus. Every day in our lives, we read His Word over and over and over. Second thing we do um, is we pray. We spend time in intentional prayer every single day. Not just prayers of, God, I really need your help, but, car uh, but carving out time every single day, much like we carve out time in our daily lives to read his word. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's 15 minutes. Maybe it's 45 minutes. I don't know what it is for you. But the, the, the point is it doesn't matter. The, the length does not matter. Remember when the disciples came to Jesus one time and said, Lord, teach us how to pray? He said, okay, our Father who art in heaven. It's about a 90-second prayer, the Lord's Prayer, right? You don't have to pray a long time. In fact, Jesus even warns us against lengthy prayers. You don't get extra credit for praying long and lofty prayers. He just wants you to talk to him, have some conversation with him. So we need to do this every single day. Reading his word, prayer, weekly worship. Gathering together as God's people. 
Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here, right? We need to do this every single week. Be together as the people of God. And I know sometimes you wake up on Sundays, you're like, ah, I don't feel like it. Or I got other stuff to do today. But it's really important for us to gather together. Being a Jesus follower, I've said this over and over, it's not a solo sport. It's something that we can only do together. And I know some of you are watching preseason football right now, right? You're all getting anticipated for uh, the Bears and the Packers and the whoever else, uh, Michigan, whoever you're following, right? You're following football. And what if you were to meet a football player? They've got on the pads. They got a football. They got a score plan. And they got a, you know, they got all the gear, a helmet. And you say to them, well, what team do you play for? I don't play for a team. When you're not a football player. To be a Jesus follower means you gather together with the team. Because you've got strengths that I don't have. And I've got strengths that you don't have. And we need to gather together on Sunday morning to worship God, to give glory to God. But we need each other. And so I want to invite you to come each and every week to be a part of worship. Prayer, worship, reading scripture, serving. Now the interesting thing about uh, the word serving in our English language is that in the Hebrew language it's the identical word as worship. Isn't that interesting? So when you serve, you are worshiping. We do this in all sorts of different ways. We do this on Sunday morning through setting up and being a part of our Sunday morning uh, gathering together. We do this together through uh, activities during the week, like through SOAR. We do this through Midwest Food Bank. We do this through our outreach partners. And we support those who are going on mission trips. We just had a mission team go to Ecuador. And we help to provide uh, medical supplies. And I think some of our youth helped pack those medical supplies. So this is what it means to, to worship, to serve. It's that to, to be a Jesus follower, to abide with him, means to serve both at the church and beyond the church. Next one, small groups. We call them life groups here at Faith. And really the idea is it's being in relationship with one another. Because as much as I love getting together on Sunday morning with you all, being with this group of people, we can never have more than about a 30-minute, uh, maybe a 30-second conversation with one another. This isn't doing life together. This is being together. But it's such a sh there's, there's too many of us together for us to really dig into the, the deep details of our lives. And so when some of you came this morning, it was like, hey, what's going on? And you're like, oh, it's been a rough week. Well, we don't really have time to talk about that, right? I'm like, ah, we got worship here in a couple minutes. Don't want to hear about it right now. Not right now. Let's talk about it on the phone this week. Better yet, talk about it at your small group this week, at your life group. Because that's where we do life together. That's where we are known and we, are, and we share our lives with other people. So we do this through small groups, through life groups. And the last way uh, that I want to lift up to us uh, this morning is through our financial giving. When we give our finances to God, we are acknowledging that everything belongs to him. It's our way of worshiping God. It's, it's our way of saying, you know what, God, you have blessed me with so much. I'm just, you've only asked me to give 10% back. 
So you know when you give to your church, you don't do that because the church needs your money, right? It's not, it, it's not because the church needs your money. We give financially because you need to be giving. God doesn't need your money. Psalm 50 tells us he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God's got plenty of money. God's got everything he needs. Giving is always about you and the ways in which you need to be giving and letting go of what God has given to you. And I want to close just by reminding us once again, these spiritual disciplines, prayer, worship, serving, uh, reading the Bible, small groups and financial giving, we do these things not to earn God's favor. Your, your salvation, it's, it's good. You're good. He's already rescued you. He has invited us to walk with him in this deep and abiding relationship so that whatever the struggles, whatever the challenges, whatever dogs are snarling at you in the world, you can rest in his arms and have the confidence that God's got you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you are indeed a God who loves us and cares for us. But God, we get so distracted by all the things of this world. And so, Lord, remind us again today of your deep and abiding love for us, the ways, God, in which you want us to be held in your arms, to experience your love, to experience your joy, to experience your peace, to experience the very presence of Jesus in our lives. We ask, God, that you would help us to never forget that you are, you are so close and you invite us to dwell with you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.